Another day Another dollar Makes you wonder where your money went You can scream Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't dictate it well, is almost always the case. During my 50-mile commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas, on a gray, dark, dingy 58-degree, oh, 59-degree day, hooray, the temperature just went up a degree as I was saying that. Modern technology is wonderful in a car, isn't it? We're going to talk about modern car technology a little bit today, because we're going to be doing a listener question today, and one is going to be on deciding on a used vehicle, so we'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, Again, we are going to be doing listener questions today. It's Monday. It's kind of become a Monday tradition, when and where is it can happen. And uh have a huge backlog of questions. If you sent me a question late last week and you don't hear it today, that's because I'm answering questions from a week ago. I might double up on a, on a listener question show sometime soon to uh, catch up on the backlog, but I'm not ignoring you. Before we... Uh Get on with the show. Let's do some housekeeping. First of all, this is episode 295, which means we're very, very close to our 300th episode. And I think that's really cool. Thank you guys for hanging with me that long. Uh, it is uh, Monday, as I've said already. It's the 12th of October, 2009. And that means we are only 10 days away from the release of Windows 7, when all our computers can be burdened with yet another operating system that uh, won't work right. Uh, so not much seems to be going on out there other than some ass clownery. And I've been asked about a lot of ass clownery. I'm going to talk about it a little bit today. Um, but I'm going to push that off into the main show segment. What I want to do now is remind you guys to support our sponsors. And our sponsors of the day-to-day are ready-made resources. And these guys have a tremendous uh, amount of material available, some really cool stuff. I really suggest, guys, that you download their solar catalog. I think you can learn a lot from it. And our other sponsor of the days, our other sponsor of the day today is MERS-radio.com. Again, MERS-radio.com. Great way to extend your communications capabilities among your family and neighborhood without the need for a license. And some cool security options as well. They've got this thing, guys. You put these um, little sensors out on your property, right? They're pre-programmed like Sector 1, Sector 2. And if they detect motion in that sector, you have your little base station sitting in your house that will say, Alert, Sector 1. So if you have a bigger piece of property, they're a really cool, low-cost way uh, to improve your uh, security. So take a look at those guys, and they give you great support after the sale as well. Uh, Next one is uh, make sure you join in our forum. Guys, get involved. I'll leave it at that today. Last but not least, if you think the show's worth more than 20 cents an episode, uh, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You'll get exclusive content available only to members. And with that, let's get on with the show. And uh, first question today, it's kind of an interesting one. Guys out in uh, Southern California, hasn't had rain in a day past forever. Uh, They now have water police and water restrictions. So if you overuse your water, the water police will come to your house and uh, they will get you for using too much water. And he wants to know if 
he can uh, desalinate ocean water in his backyard if he's going to find out whether it's legal and isn't worth doing. Um, I'd say no. It's probably not worth doing. Um, desalination uh, requires a lot of energy, and it, it takes a lot of effort. It's not something you can just uh, do easily. Now, basically, it's not that difficult. You can basically create a, a, a big solar still and do it, and I guess if you were starving for water and you needed water to drink or bathe with, it might be worth doing. So if you want to do it as a project, um, yeah, you could do it. You could see see what it is. There's nothing illegal, I, I don't think, about uh, carrying some ocean water home. Now, if you're going to go down there with a 500-gallon tank and start pumping it out of the sea, I have no idea how the whack jobs out in California are going to look at that. Um, so you do need to check your local ordinances. But uh, other than if you're small-scale and just to see if you can do it, that, that's fine. But I don't think it's a valid irrigation solution. Let me tell you what I think you might want to consider doing as an irrigation solution. One, put in rain catch. I know it hasn't rained forever, but it will rain. When it rains, at least you'll be catching it. You'll be adding to your, your water storage. Two, until it rains, if you know how much water you're using and you know how much water you're allowed to use, on any day that you don't use as much water as you're allocated, put the the, uh, the, put some additional water into your water storage uh, facility you've set up to do rain catchment. And what that'll do is slowly over time build up a reserve because going into this part of the year, you're probably using a lot less water anyway um, with your gardening and irrigation. So what I'm suggesting that you do is figure out a way to meter your water and make sure you're taking your allotted share every month. Don't go over and don't get in trouble with the water police, but then store that water up. It would be the same thing as if you said, Jack, uh, my local store is only allowing me to buy, you know, one box of uh, ammunition a week. What do I do? Buy a box of ammunition a week. Right? I mean, that, I mean, that would be the way to handle any other situation. So I suggest you do the same thing here. But personal desalination stills, I've never seen it done on any kind of a level. The other thing is you're going to have an awful lot of salt uh, at the end of the process, way more than you can probably use. So uh, unless you're going to go into the business of extracting sea salt and maybe selling you know, organic sea salt or something like that, I really don't see it as a, as a valid solution to anything, other than it might be a cool project just to see if you can pull it off. Next question is on one of my favorite subjects. It's on Biltong. Okay, so say, Jack, I'm getting a lot of conflicting information online. How long does Biltong last and what is the best way to store it? You know, I guess he's, I've looked around and I've seen people saying you need to freeze it. I've seen people saying you need to vacuum pack it. People say it lasts six months. People, people say it lasts six years. What's the truth? Well, here's the truth about Biltong. Uh, it pretty much lasts forever. I, I, I know that sounds ridiculous, but I remember reading an article by Peter Hathaway Capstick about Biltong where he had wrapped up a couple sticks of it in some foil and threw it in one of his, uh, like, hunting vests. And this is hunting in South Africa. And the vest got tossed aside or something. It had been more than ten years since he had seen the vest. And when he found the vest, this, you know, this biltong was in there. And it's just been out in the open, you know, not sealed up in any way, other than having something, some foil wrapped around it for over ten years. And he said it was still good. It was very dry, but it was edible. So, its storage length, for all intents and purposes, is infinite. Let's call it 10 years to be safe. Let's call it 5 years. Uh, Because it's not really going to change what I'm going to tell you next. 
In fact, I'll make you a deal. If you have any biltong sitting around for five years and you're worried about what to do with it, mail it to me and I'll eat it. I'll take care of it for you uh, really quick and I'll be happy to do so. Uh, it's the one thing in this world I crave even more than uh, beer and beef jerky. It, it is it just it is a class under itself. Now, as far as storing it, storing it, here's the deal. This is why I've always said you don't need a biltong box. You don't need a dehydration chamber. All you need is dry air. So if you have an air-conditioned or heated home, you can hang up biltong in a room of your house. It might look a little silly, but a week and a half later, when it's hard on the outside, you have biltong. And if you want it drier in the middle, you can leave it hang for a little longer. That's pretty much it. And because of that, because that's how it's made, how you store it is really about how moist do you want the center. Some people like when they cut open an inch-thick piece of biltong for it to be completely dry all the way through. And some people like the center to be a little bit moist, even a little bit pinkish, which will only last for a period of time. But maybe they want to stop it when it's at that point where you look inside and there's like a little tiny pink center, almost like the pink center of a medium, uh, medium well steak off the grill. Okay? So you decide what tastes best to you, what you, you prefer most. I like my biltong a little bit moist. So the only thing you have to do is when it reaches a point that you don't want it to get any drier, Put it in something that's moisture-proof, so a Ziploc bag, uh, glass jar with a, with a sealed lid, anything like that, and you're not going to have to worry about refrigerating it or freezing it or anything like that. In fact, I would recommend you don't freeze it. A uh, good giant Tupperware container that seals up well, that's, that's airtight. All you're doing at that point, though, is you're not trying to preserve it. The process of making it preserved it. What you're trying to do is preventing it from becoming any drier, and that that's about it. Almost like a cigar in a humidor, that type of thing. So... There you go, and just don't overstress this at all. Don't worry about it. If you read some article by some guy that says Biltong has a shelf life of 90 days unless you freeze it or something like that, he doesn't know what he's talking about. And if you read one that says it's two years, it's just because he felt like he had to put a limit on it. Uh, the reality is that uh, most of it never sticks around that long because it tastes too gone good. And uh, it really has kind of a, a shelf life that is uh, remarkable and hard to believe. But I'll tell you what it is. The way that you cure this stuff with salt and a little tiny spritz of vinegar and coriander and black pepper and allow it to naturally dry out, it's almost a mummification process. And if you've ever looked at, like, pictures of mummified bodies, and you look at a piece of biltong, especially a really big piece that maybe has two different muscle groups coming together in it, you'll see exactly what I mean. It doesn't look anything like, like beef jerky. It doesn't feel anything like beef, like beef jerky. If you take a piece that's, like, say, an, an inch around and a foot long, if you had a piece of beef jerky that size, that thick, it, it wouldn't work well. You'd have to pack together thin pieces to make a block of jerky like that. Um, but it would weigh, you know, the jerky would weigh a hell of a lot more than the biltong. It almost feels like balsa wood in weight. And it's that component that makes it so storable and lasts so long. And it's made it kind of the perfect uh, protein on the go, uh, in my opinion. And again, if you, if you think it's been around too long in your house, pack it up, send it to Jack Spirico, I'll eat it for you. I'm thinking that this uh, question here has something to do with uh, all the recent discussion in my show on civil disobedience or civil uh, civil breakdown, um, you know, rioting and things like that. This guy says, uh, "Do you think that if the government ever decides to like compensate gold, silver, and guns, that the local law enforcement will?" Uh, 
will play along. Will they do their job? Or will cooler heads prevail? Will they say, hey, you know, I'm not going to do this? And he mentioned Oath Keepers, which is an organization for soldiers and guardsmen and, and sheriffs and law enforcement officers and firefighters, where they basically state that I will keep my oath to the Constitution and to the people, and I'll hold that sacred above my, my oath to government. Uh, which one do you think you know would prevail in this situation? This is a multi-pronged question, so let's take it that way. Let's start out with the gold and silver. Stop worrying about this. Oh, for the love of God, especially private gold and silver that you own and hold in your own hand that no one knows about. Stop stop listening to these people that are trying to sell you a special kind of gold that, that it's not going to be seized. They keep pointing back to what FDR did. I, I, I've got to say, say this again. You've got to understand this. The gold that was confiscated during the FDR administration was currency. It was $20 gold coins, $5 gold coins. All right, It was stamped U.S. currency. That's what was seized. If you had a, uh, I don't know, a golden dagger, you, know, you had a gold-handled dagger that was handed down to you or something like that, no one showed up at your house and took it away from you. What they did during the Great Depression was seize all this gold currency and issue paper currency in its place and basically outlaw the use of the gold currency. So could the government ever turn around and and confiscate gold and silver? The government could turn on us and do anything at at any point if, if things go far enough in the wrong direction. But you can't sit around worried about your gold and silver. you really got to let that go or you're going to make dumb decisions when somebody calls you and tries to sell you something or you're never we're going to own it because you're so worried about losing it. All right, and there's there's an old saying I can't remember how it goes, but it has to do with how you hold sand. And if you pick up a handful of sand and you hold it loosely, you can hold a lot of sand in your hand. But if you squeeze it really tight because you're afraid you're going to lose it, you'll hold a lot less. You'll lose most of it through your fingers. And I think a lot of you guys that are so worried about stuff being taken away are holding on so tight, you're never allowing yourself to build up any reserve of anything. So please don't worry about the gold and silver anymore. Hold your gold and silver privately in your own possession. Don't record it. Don't talk about it. Let it be what it is, and don't worry about that. Because if we ever get into that situation where they're actually seizing it, what you have privately may be the most valuable thing in the world you could own. Stop worrying about the gold. Guns are a different story. Uh, There is an active movement out there to take guns away from people. We know this. And those people have been beaten back heavily in government for the time being. But they're still there, and they're still waiting for their opportunity. Now, this gun seizure thing, and the question presupposes that something is going to happen that I don't think isn't. That one day they'll pass a law and say, no more guns. And then they'll say, go get the guns. from the, they'll tell, Well, first they'll say, turn your guns in. And then when it becomes clear that all the guns have not been turned in, they'll send people out to go get their guns. And that it will be a very orderly process, and law enforcement will be simply told, go get the guns. It can't work that way. There's too big of a resistance to it for it to work that way. Um, there's too many officers that own their own private guns that wouldn't give them up. There's too many FBI agents that own their own private guns that aren't going to give them up. There's too many of everything that's involved, the sheriff's departments. all The, 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 the number of people required to do this and the number of them that are also owning weapons that are personal and having family and friends that they would not be willing to take from is too big. So you can't do it that way. 
And this is why it's a very unique nation that we live in, the United States, and our way we run our military. In the military, you're trained and taught from day one you are a citizen soldier. There's no draft anymore in our nation. That's part of it. But the other part of it is you're a citizen. You're not separate from the citizenry when you become a soldier. A soldier adds to what you are. A Marine adds to what you are. Becoming a sailor or an airman adds to what you are. But you're still a citizen. And you're serving as a citizen. Most militaries do not work that way. Even if they work that way, they don't make an effort to tell you that. You're not recruited with that in mind. You are apart from civilian until you go back to being a civilian and the two worlds are separated. You are soldiers vote. I'll put it to you that way. So, with that in mind, you can't send Johnny to take away Uncle Pete's rifle because it's not going to happen. So, a gun seizure will never work that way. What they'll do is they'll enact gun seizures in the middle of chaos and rioting where the soldier on the ground, the law enforcement officer on the ground is in the middle of chaos and trying to stay alive and trying to keep people alive like Hurricane Katrina. In that situation, you have to understand that the person doing the action doesn't see the big picture. They see the 50,000 people tearing each other apart around them, and they know the, the danger of a gun in that scenario, and they're trying to prevent it from happening. And they're misled by the chess players that watch over the entire board. That's how it would actually happen. And what would happen as it became evident what was going on, how people would respond, will this cop do that? Will this sheriff do that? Will this soldier do this? That's going to come down to the individual man. But if you ask me where I place my faith. I place my faith in the heart of the warrior, the soldier, the sailor, the airman, the marine, the law enforcement officer, the sheriff. I place my faith in their hearts above the hearts and the, the uh, capability of the bureaucrat any day. I think if we ever get into that scenario, that those will be the people that will eventually stand along our side and say, hell no, we're not going to let this line be crossed. And I think Oath, Ke- Oath Keepers and the number of people getting involved with Oath Keepers is a huge uh, compass for us to see where that's going. And I know I took a long time to answer that question, but it's a really important one. And there's a lot of things. I mean, we could do a whole show, probably two, just on dissecting the different permeations that can go on there. Okay, here's a, uh, a cool question. Guy says uh, he's part of the uh, 912 project, which is something that Glenn Beck kind of started up and then just took his hands off and said, you guys, you guys do it. It's yours. And... Um, I get a lot of uh, info, you know, a lot of stuff sent to me about 912 groups and why don't I do more to promote them or what have you. This is not a political show. We talk about politics as it pertains to prepping. But now I'm being asked about this in a way that pertains to prepping. Guy says, how do I get self-sufficiency, prepper mentality into my 912 group? Uh, I think it's a great question. I think it's a great angle. I think it's a great group of people to talk about it with. I think you do it very slowly, and you do it in you know kind of one-on-one conversations, but I think that the conversation should revolve around, why do we want liberty? What is, what is so precious about liberty? And what does a person who is full of liberty look like? This, uh, this quest to take our nation back, where are we taking it back to in time? 
What are the best qualities of all the time periods that we've lost? There were bad things that happened in the 1800s. There were bad things that happened in the early 1900s. There were bad things that happened, you know, way back at the beginning of our nation. None of us that say we want our nation back want to go back to those bad things. But there were great things that happened throughout those time periods. And there was something special about the people of those time periods. A a, a self-worth, an independence, a self-reliance, and a self-sufficiency. And if you talk to people that have decided that our government's spending too much, you you have to think about what they're going to hear from the opposition. We have to take care of people. And their natural response is, because it's a natural human response, is, hey, no, 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 I'll take care of myself. Well, what about the people that can't take care of themselves? Well, private people can take care of them like they always did. If you start having a conversation about where our nation used to be even 100 years ago, and the good parts of that, the fact that everybody gardened, the fact that everybody took care of themselves, the fact that when somebody had a problem in a neighborhood, the neighborhood wasn't unaware of it. In fact, they were actively involved in the solution. If you start to bring these things to the attention of people that have started to taste liberty, because that's these people in these 912 groups, by and large, not all of them. Some of them are like, they're right-wing nuts. You know? There's there's some gay-bashing, you know, uh, fear-mongering, right-wing nuts that are out there in that 912 movement. They're one-tenth of one percent. So other than them, the vast majority of those people have begun to taste liberty. They've begun to allow themselves to dream of what liberty would look like. They've begun to understand that they are actually in control, that they've been asleep at the switch, and it's time for them to act. They have begun to realize they don't want government to solve their problems anymore. So if you just start talking to them slowly and individually about how they can be more self-sufficient in their own lives, and then you tie that to furthering the agenda. The agenda is, we want other people to feel this way too. Well, I've said this before. If you want to convert people from government status mind to liberty mind, Give them 100% of the ability to care for themselves. You know, get them to a point where they've built up a piece of land or some other alternative to that that's providing them some of their own food. Get them to the point where they're producing some of their own energy. Give them a stake in the game that they earn for themselves. You can't just give it to them. So when I say give it, I don't mean give it the way a socialist does. I mean help them to get to a point where they acquire these things and this knowledge for themselves. And then they have a stake and they have something to lose. And when they start talking about redistributing... They now no longer are on the the hand that is doing the receiving. They're on the side that is the hand that is being taken from. So I think it's a great idea. I just think all you have to do is start bringing up the subject and talking about it. But don't try to make it like part of the movement. Start talking to the individuals about self-sufficiency, self-reliance, independence, and exactly what time in America they thought was so special and why they thought it was so special. What was great about America a 100 years ago? What made the people different? Don't worry about what made the government different. You know, there's only so much we'll ever be able to do with government. No matter what we do, no matter who we elect, no matter who we put in place, government will have inherent limitations of grabbing for power and being inefficient 
and being myopic and having its own agenda that is outside the agenda of the people. That will always be the case. No perfect government shall ever exist. That is why our, our founders put together a constitution that inherently limited government. That's what we would like to get back to. But the main way I know to get people to understand that is to allow them to live a life like we talk about here. So that when somebody starts talking about taking it away, it matters to them. If their entire life revolves around a, a commute and a cubicle, it's even if they're the people that are being targeted, they're not really going to understand what's at stake and what they have to lose. They already give up a lot of their money. So they'll get something back on the other side. You know, maybe we do need to do this. And they're easily led at that point. The cubicle and the commute creates the sheeple. And it's by design. And it's about time for people. There's nothing wrong with the cubicle and the commute. What happens when you get out on the other side? What do you do? Do you run around in a bar? Do you sit in front of the TV? Do you listen to talk radio? Or do you get out of the house? Do you put your hands into the earth? Do you become involved with your own subsistence? If you do that, you're going to crave liberty. So that's the best answer I can give you there. Here's a great one. I love this question because I love being able to speak to a 19-year-old girl or boy that's starting out in their life and is about ready to do something stupid and have an opportunity to tell them not to do it. guy says, what do I tell my 19-year-old daughter who's all excited because Wells Fargo just sent her a pre-approved credit card? How do I convince her that this is not the right thing to do? I understand she won't listen to me. Maybe she'll listen to somebody else. Well, have her listen to at least this segment of my podcast. And understand, young lady, I'm talking directly to you. I'm not talking to an ethereal concept. I'm not talking in a generalization. I'm talking to you. You're 19. You just got this thing in the mail. Your father's concerned for what you're going to do with your life. I am too. And I'll tell you what you need to do with that thing right now. Get rid of it. Throw it away. Do not get that credit card. It is the first step toward oblivion with your finances. If you get that card, I promise you, I promise you, because I've been there by 26 or 27, at the latest, you will be looking at a pile of debt, you will have your hands in your face, and you will wonder how the hell it happened. And then you will go through a long, painful process of paying it off, and you will come to the conclusion that you can come to right now, on your own, without anybody making you do it, by just analyzing the situation and thinking properly. Here, I'll tell you what. I'll make a deal with you. This is what I want you to do. Go out and get yourself some 5 by 7 cards, little note cards, all right? And I want you to right now think to yourself, what is a credit card payment you're willing to commit to? $100, $200, whatever that is, whatever your credit card payment is that you think you'd be able to make every month. Now, you've made it till 19 without a credit card. Surely you can make it for six more months. For the next six months, I want you to keep in your purse or your car or whatever some of those little 5 by 7 cards. Every time you see an item that you would purchase with that credit card, if you had it, write it down and write its price. At the end of six months, double the number that you have in total spending. Because you'll spend twice as much when you actually can do it, especially the first time you hand them the credit card, and wow, it really works. At the end of that, I want you to figure out how much money you would owe. I want you to take your minimum pay. I want your interest rate to factor into this, and I want you to go find a credit card payment calculator and find out after six months how long that payment is going to take to pay off your debt. When you do, you'll never go there. You'll never freaking go there because you'll understand it for the poison that it is, or you can just trust the people that have already been there. It's up to you. 
But if you start down that path, what will happen is another one of those shiny little envelopes will show up offering you more credit. I promise you that will happen next. And eventually you won't have one debt, you'll have multiple debts. And you'll have debt built up at a point in your life where you haven't even really gotten started with your career yet. You're 19, you have so much ahead of you. And I know people tell you that every freaking day to the point where you're tired of hearing it, but there's a reason, because it's true. And unless you're making $100,000 a year at 19, you haven't realized your potential, because you have the potential to make at least that. So why are you going to laden yourself with burden that's going to hold you back before you've reached your potential? I also understand that you're, you're using the classic excuse, and don't feel bad about doing it at 19, because people that are 40 use it with me all the time. And I'll tell them the same thing that I'm going to tell you. But how do I build my credit up without a credit card? You don't worry about building your credit it up without a credit card. Just don't worry about it. I want you to do the other thing for me. Remember I said to set up how much money you'd be willing to make in a credit card payment? $100, $200, whatever that number is. I want you to make that payment in this six-month period. Do it for a year would be even better, but at least six months. Be me halfway there. Take that payment. Make the payment to yourself into a savings account. At the end of that six months, I want you to look at how long it would take you to pay off that debt for the amount of money that's now in your bank account that you own. And I want you to understand that if you'll do this, by the time you're 22 or 23, you'll have tens of thousands of dollars saved. Unbelievable, I know, but true. And when you go in to buy your first home, and you have a good income and good savings, and you can prove that you could afford your first home, you'll be able to buy your first home. A bank will give you a mortgage. And that is what you're going to need credit for. Possibly at some point you'll buy a car. But you don't need to be buying a car that comes with a car payment right now either. That is another debt trap that you don't need to go into. If you're really worried about building up credit, you know what? When you save up $1,000, go to your bank that you have $1,000 and ask for a $900 unsecured loan. Take the $900, put it into your savings account, offer the initial $1,000 up as collateral. Use the $900 they gave you, pay the, the one-year loan back in three months. Do it a couple times. You'll build credit with the bank that you're working with. And that's all you'll need to get a mortgage. And again, that's all you should really ever be buying on credit. If you want to buy a car on credit, I'm not totally opposed to it. Uh, but trust me, there's plenty of people that go out and do it every day that never had a credit card in their lives. You do not need a credit card. It is a lie. It is a myth. And it is designed to ensnare you in a long-term trap that will put you into debt and put you into a gerbil wheel where you will work for the man for the rest of your life. It's how everybody's got there. They all got that one too. And you're young enough to have enough of the optimism and the realism left in you because society hasn't beat it out yet. Look around you. Look at all the people, the, all the old men that are only 20 years older than you and all the old women that are only 20 years older than you that are freaking miserable that you look at and shake your head and go, why are these people so stressed? They're stressed because they didn't listen when somebody told them the same damn thing because they thought they were smarter and now they're dealing with it and you don't have to. So that's what I would say to you, young lady. That's what I would say to anybody in your position. 
And if you were 45, I would give you the exact same advice. So don't think you're being talked down to because you're young. I'll give it to you straight because that's what you deserve. And understand that the person standing next to you right now telling you not to do this, cares about you, loves you, does not want to see you go down this road to hell. So they're trying to prevent you from doing it. And any justification you come up with, send it to me and I will kill it quickly for you. You come up with any reason that you think you need this, send it to me, I'll kill it for you. Alright? That's all I can do on that. And that message, even though it was tailor-made to one individual, is for every single one of you out there, stop making excuses for debt. It has no place in your life. And I'm still talking here, even though I'm going to a new question to that young lady, to make a point of how serious I am about this. I mentioned this last week as an aside. It was a question that came in. I'll answer it quickly again. Guy emails me and says, hey, look, I wear glasses. I'm afraid if the shit hits the fan of my glasses break, I won't be able to see. So I'm willing to go into debt for LASIK eye surgery. Should I do it? And my answer then and now is the same. No, don't go into debt for LASIK eye surgery. Figure out what your payment for LASIK eye surgery would be. Start making the payment to yourself now to an account specifically to fund your LASIK eye surgery. It will be less than two years, I promise you, and you will be able to afford your LASIK eye surgery because you'll pay cash for it and you'll pay less. For now, go find a website. I'll put a link out there today if I really need to where you can buy cheap glasses. You get an extra pair of glasses for 12 bucks. Buy two extra pairs of glasses for 12 bucks. They don't look great. They won't be great. But if you need them, you'll have them. Put them away and you have a backup pair. You should have a backup pair of glasses anyway. But that's going to be a hell of a lot less expensive than going into debt for two to five years to pay for a surgery that you could pay for in one to two years by paying cash for it and never going into debt. So you see a common theme here. Uh, that's as quick as I need to answer that one because I really answered it in the past. But I wanted to make a point. And if you want to hold on here, uh, after this question, I have the last question. The last question is about debt again in a totally different scenario with a person way different part of life than a 19-year-old with a really hefty income. And you want to see my advice about debt and its consistency, hold on for that one. But let's do this one first. Guy's looking to buy a truck. Three-quarter ton GMC, 2003 to 2007. Great vehicle. Can't, can't put down those vehicles in any way, shape, or form. But he's considering between gas and diesel. His concern with diesel is maybe having some gelling problems. Cause I think he lives in Colorado, somewhere where it gets really daggone cold. Um, I'm not familiar with all of those years. I don't know if all of them have the option to be plugged in overnight. Uh, they may or may not, but that is one thing that will kind of really kill that thing altogether. And uh, it's a very low draw. You'll never even notice it on your electric bill. So if you have a garage or you have an ability to run an extension cord out there and plug your diesel engine in and it has that option, you can forget about that. The next modern diesel fuel is pretty resistant to gelling. I mean, we're talking about frigid Arctic level, well below zero temperatures before you're going to have to worry about that based on the way this stuff is treated. So I wouldn't worry about that. He mentioned there are additives, but he might not want to deal with it. Hey, the additives for the winter time are pretty much you buy a bottle of this stuff, and every time you fill up, you pour a couple ounces into the tank. So it's not a hassle, and it's not expensive if you want to take that extra layer of protection. So I wouldn't rule the diesel out on that. So now when you have me down to anything in between 03 and 07, three-quarter ton GMC pickup truck, uh, do I buy diesel or gas? I would buy the diesel. 
And let me tell you why I would buy the diesel. He said he's looking at one right now with 98,000 miles on it. Not the suspension, not the starter, not all the things that are common on both vehicles. But the engine itself. When I look at a diesel truck, if it's been well-maintained, oil changes, all that jazz, with 100,000 miles on it, and I look at a gas motor in that same equivalent vehicle with zero miles on it, I think that diesel engine probably will go further than the gas engine if both are maintained throughout their life cycles. A diesel engine putting 300,000 miles on when it's maintained properly is a joke. It happens all the time. No one even is surprised. No one even talks about it. Now, gas motors can go 300,000 miles. It can be done. It happens. But when they do, it's a big deal. People talk about it. People are like, wow, look, this thing went 300,000 miles. The guy's like, well, how, how much miles? You, you know, I talked to, to put it in perspective, I talked to a guy. He has a car, smaller vehicle, but this is a diesel. I, I pulled in my little, you know, shiny new diesel, diesel Jetta into a Starbucks oven hot springs. And there's a guy sitting out in the little patio there, and he goes, ah, jet of diesel. I got one, too. He points to it. He's got this boxy-looking thing. I don't remember what year it was. It was 90-something. And uh, he goes, how many miles you got on it? And I'm like, oh, I think I got about 50,000 at the time. He goes, well, you'll only need a new car for a long time. He points at his. He goes, you see that? He goes, I got 485,000 miles on that car. He says, the body's going to fall off the car before that engine gives out. And I've just seen that with diesels, and I was a diesel mechanic in the Army, and I had trucks that we had in our unit that I'm pretty well convinced were running during the Vietnam War. And I was in the Army in, like, you know, late early 1990s, and these things were still around and running. We had one truck that uh, we went down to a cannibalization point, which is like a, uh, a junkyard for the military. We took a hood off another similar model that had a white star on it. And my buddy's like, there's no way this is going to fit on our truck. I'm like, they're the same trucks, dude. And he's like, no, there's no way. He goes, this is like Korean War vintage or something. I'm like, dude, they're the same truck. So we took the hood, went back to the unit. It went right, bolted right on. And we, you know, we card painted it and blended it in with the rest of the vehicle. So I just know the longevity, the reliability, the power, and the fuel efficiency of a diesel. I also know the flexibility, if we ever get into a real shit at the fan, of how there are multiple sources that you can use to make your own fuel. Uh, and in a Colorado winter, you just can't dump vegetable oil in there. But if it was warm out and you had to, you could do it. And that is uh, that is a flexibility. That there's no way to make gasoline. You can't do anything to make a gas motor run in a true end-of-the-world shit-hit-the-fan. There's all kinds of alternative sources for fuel that will run in a diesel. So I think the maintenance might be just a little bit higher, but Long term, you're going to save a ton of money because you're going to drive that vehicle a lot longer than you would a gas equivalent. That's my opinion. I am honestly biased in this direction. I buy diesels whenever I have the option, and uh, I've worked on diesels half, you know, not half my life, but but for a significant portion of my life, I worked on diesel motors. So I understand you're getting some biased advice, but you're getting some honest advice that I truly believe in. I should also note real quick before I move on to my last question that. 
during uh, the time that I first moved here to Texas, um, I went into a variety of different occupations as I worked my way into finally into a sales position. Uh, and one was working with outside plant construction, and we did this directional boring, they call it. Big, huge, heavy machines, you know, drilling underground and drawing pipe and materials back. And we carried this huge, heavy equipment, backhoes, these directional rigs, big uh, water slurry units around. And uh, during that time, I had a company truck. It was a, uh, a Chevy uh, diesel, uh, one-ton dually, uh, with, uh, I don't remember what the, the, the leader of the engine was, but when I was given the vehicle, it had 200,000 miles on it. I drove it for two years, and I put close to another 100,000 miles on it. We did regular oil changes on it, so it was close to 300,000 miles. Now, this 300,000 miles would not be like 300,000 miles for the typical driver. This was 300,000 miles of dragging construction equipment around, uh, dealing with very rugged, very rough conditions, and uh, this vehicle sailed through it. So, you know, that's kind of my last testimonial for the uh, the diesel before I take the last question. Okay, here's the last question. It is on debt, and it's pretty involved, and hopefully I'll get it right because it's a lot of detail to give you because I want to make a point here. Guy emails me. Says, hey, look, Jack, I make about $165,000 a year. My job is secure. Stop, Section 1. Your job is not secure. I don't care where you work. I don't care how secure you think your job is. Right now, nobody's job is secure. Please understand that and temper the rest of my advice with that knowledge. I don't care if you work for the government. I don't care if you work for a company that's never had a layoff in 100 years. I don't care who you think you are. Your job is not as secure as you think it is. It may not be secure because five years from now, you may be ready to blow your brains out if you have to work there another day. You don't know what the next five years will bring you, so your job is not secure. Even if it's secure financially, even if it's still there, you may not want to be there. And the day that you don't want to be there anymore, your security is gone. Because you will start to lead yourself out of your own security. Because subconsciously you'll know that you're in the wrong place and you won't want to be there anymore. I can't make it any more clear than that. The next thing is, he's got about $350,000 in combined IRAs and 401ks. His company is contributing 10% of his income to his 401k, um, whether uh, he contributes or not. So there's money going in there no matter what, as long as he works. Good. Excellent. Great. Make sure you're protecting that money. Make sure it's not 100% levers in the stocks and... Um, things like that. Make sure some of it's in cash value. If you can roll some of it out into an IRA and take greater control, consider doing that. Get a good financial advisor that's, that specializes in wealth preservation and have him manage at least a bit of your portfolio, and that's good. He's also got about $25,000 in savings. That's good, too. That's wonderful. Keep putting money into your savings account. Keep doing that and you're going to have a really cool life with everything you've got going on up to this point. Uh, he has zero credit card debt. Good. Anytime one of those shiny credit card applications show up, compost it. Shred it and compost it. Makes great warm bedding. Makes great compost. Consider it a gift from the credit card companies to your garden. Right. Next, he's got $925 in car payments between two Nissan cars. All right. Um, I... Not happy about that for you. I, I wish you did not have $1,000 of your income going into car payments every month. Didn't say whether they were bought or leased. If they're bought, 
fine. At least you'll own them at the end of this. Take very good care of them if they're leased. That seems like really high lease payments for a couple of Nissans, an 89 and or an 08 and an 09. But they're brand new cars. That means you have a long term to pay on these. Uh, let's say 48 and uh, 60 months is, is where I'm going to guess that you're at there. So, high car payments. I would not have advised you to go there, but with your income level, it's not a problem. Make sure you're paying extra on at least one of the car notes. Pay one of them off early as soon as it's paid off early. Use all of the compounding effect to pay the other one off early. Get out of your car debt. That's, that's my advice to you there. I haven't even got to this guy's question yet. And I'm already saying you're overpaying on your car payments. You should have bought one car, drove a used car, paid that one off, and then bought another car. All right, And you might want to consider... Now, 25 k is not enough. I was going to say, you might want to consider dipping into your savings to accelerate payments on one of those cars, but I wouldn't do that. I would scrape and find some extra money and at least double at least double up on one of your car payments. Here's the question. Who wants to buy a 1,500-square-foot cabin in the Texas Hill Country for 230 k Kind of, I guess, as a bug-out location. Um, if he does this, he's going to have a $1,250 payment on the property. He's already knocked his 401k contributions to zero. He's done that because he doesn't have to contribute because the company's contributing. So if the company's contributing 10%, he's supposed to contribute 10%, why should he put his own money in there? I actually agree. If I worked for a company that put 10% of my salary into my 401k, I wouldn't contribute another dime to it. I wouldn't contribute a penny to it. If I was putting any money into any additional retirement-type securities, I would do it individually as an IRA. So I support the 0% decision. I don't support the justification for keeping it there, though. The justification for keeping it there is if I buy this second house with a $1,250 payment, I have to keep my um, my contributions to zero to make the payment. What you're telling me when you say that, you don't even realize it's what you're telling yourself. When you buy this second property to take advantage of interest rates or whatever, you're out of money. You're out of money to do anything else. The fact that you no longer have money to contribute to any kind of savings or retirement at that point means you've exhausted your funds under your current lifestyle and budget. So, would I recommend you buy this property? No. First of all, uh, 250k for a 1,500-square-foot cabin in the Texas Hill Country uh, two years ago probably a solid deal. Right now, you can do better. Keep looking. If you want to buy a property, I think you can do better. Do not get emotionally attached to any property. Make sure that you're making a cool, calculated business decision. Uh, next, if, you were gonna, if you're going to just ignore me and buy that property, offer them 200 for it. With a firm 200K, offer them 200 for it. And with a 50k down payment, which is what you're looking at doing, you would only be financing 150k instead of 200k, and that'll drop that payment some. But I wouldn't really advise you to do that. I'm just saying if you're going to ignore me and do it anyway, that's how to do that. What I would really advise you to do is you have a lot of money coming in right now. You have a lot of surplus, and you're thinking, what do I do with this? You either need to find a place that you can buy that's a lot more affordable, that gives you what you need, um, and think about how often you're going to be there. Putting 200000 into a place you're only going to be to every other week or every other month, you know, there's, there's, there's something to be said against that. So see if you want to buy real estate, see if you can find a better deal and something you can afford, because I want to explain to you what you're really doing to yourself here. You think that, well, 
can pay for everything, so it's okay. I want you to think about this. You're submitting yourself to 30 years of staying where you're at if everything else stays the same. Your mortgage at 1250 is a 30-year mortgage. So it's 30 years of $1,250. 30 years. I want you to do yourself a favor today. I want you to take 1250 I want you to multiply it by 12 and I want you to multiply it by 30 and I want you to realize how much you're actually paying to take this piece of property on. And I want you to ask yourself, is your job secure for 30 years? I want you to ask yourself if you left your current home and move there permanently, because maybe that's what you're thinking eventually. Great idea if that's what you really want. And justification for spending more than you would if you didn't. That's I'm, I'm cool with that. Um, how would you be able to afford the budget? I want you to run a budget today of living there. And how much money you would need. How much savings you have. How long you could go on the savings that you have. I want you to get some math into this equation. I want you to understand mathematically what you're doing to yourself. If you came to me with a business deal, right, and you said, I had this great idea, right, there's this new show out called The Shark Tank, where these people come in and they go, you know, I want X, you know, I want $200,000 for 25% of my business. And the first thing the sharks tell them, and I don't think most of them even realize this, if you want $200,000 for 25% of your business, you've valued your business at $800,000. Unless you can show me at least $800,000 of value in your business now, I'm overpaying for your business. These people are like, that's a great idea. Right? But the, the cool head, the calculating head of the businessman says, look, 25%, 200K, you value the business at $800,000. Now, if you want 200000 of my money, I look at your business and go, it's worth $400,000. So I'll give you two hundred, but I want 50% ownership. That's how that works. You need to analyze this financial calculation on your home the same way. How much is it going to cost you over 30 years? What is the uh, the accelerated rate of, inc- of tax increases in the area? Talk to people that live there or go find out from tax records. How much were taxes 10 years ago? How much are it today? How much increase are you going to expect on that side of the equation? You have to understand how much you're going to spend over 30 years. I guarantee you it's a hell of a lot more than the uh, 200 230k sale price, and I said 250. So I'd offer them 190. If you're going to ignore me again, offer them 190,000 for it. See what they say. Uh, they may say no. They may not be able to afford to sell it for that price. That's fine. It's not your problem. What I'm saying here is make this a very cool, calculated, math-based scenario. And I want you to really think about your words to me when you tell me my job is secure. Is it secure for 30 years? If you keep this place for five years under your current budget and scenario, and you sell your house where you live, which I won't give away uh, because it's not right to do that, and you moved... How would you pay your bills there? What would your budget be there? I want you to do this. I want you to go and put together a budget today if you were going to go live in that house right now. I want you to do a spreadsheet, and I want to put every expense that you have, and I want you to put across one column low. And I want you to lowball. If I lived cheap, if I had to, if I had to make do, bills I'm going to have to pay, electric bill, phone bill, things like that, and I want you to, cut, you know, uh, you know, living the you're probably living pretty good right now. Cutting your your meals out, everything down to the bone, low. 
And then I want you to go to the other side. I want you to go to the high side. I want you to say, I'm going to take two vacations a year. I'm going to live really good like a really happy retired couple, right? And I want you to put that on your high side. And then I want you to take the difference and to put a column in the middle called that median. And I want you to put uh, exactly a midpoint. So if one expense column was $100 for the low point, right, and $500 for the high point, then you'd be halfway in between there and you're at like, what, uh, $250. So come up with a median in between. And uh, with that, look at those three columns and understand that you're going to be somewhere in that median to high side in most instances if you're going to be living a life you actually want to live. And then I want you to say to yourself, can I afford this if we divested ourselves of where we're at today and went there? And if you can't, don't do the deal. Because you may put yourself into that scenario. How long has this property been on the market? I bet it's been on the market a long time. People are not exactly grabbing stuff up down there right now. So my my honest advice, shop longer, uh, find a better deal. Don't make a deal unless you know you could go there and afford to live there if you had to. At least for two years. At least two. I'd say five is a better plan. If you can go anywhere and make do for five years with the assets that you have on hand, then you'll be able to figure out how to make a living there for yourself from that point on. But the property sounds overpriced to me, um, just to be honest with you, just on what land's selling for there. So that you know, scenario one, keep shopping, find a better deal, make sure you can afford it. Scenario number two, you're going to ignore my advice, lowball the offer. And you might even go in at like 180 and don't be afraid. You know, your, your real estate is going to go, to take us seriously. Fine. Go in at 180. They say no. And they don't even counter. Fine. Go back three days later at 200 if you insist on buying this place. But my advice to you right now is get the car payments knocked out. Pay the cars off first. Save as much cash as you can. And be prepared to buy when you find the perfect deal. It just doesn't sound like the perfect deal. And I bet you if you take emotion out of this, um, you're going to see for yourself that it probably isn't. The fact that you gave me so much detail tells me that inside you, you know there's something wrong with the deal. All right, I hope you weren't expecting me to bless it. So I know I took a long time on that one. It was very specific, but there's a lot of debt questions today, and I wanted to stay in that theme as much as I could. So I selected the questions I did today. Folks, debt is the one thing that is really like a cancer in your life. It can destroy everything that you work to build. It can tear apart families. It can tear apart households. It can tear apart portfolios. It can tear apart dreams. You've got to control and manage debt properly. I'm okay with a mortgage for a debt. Two of them, you really have to think, what would I do if I had to give up one? And you have to think that from both ends. If I have to give up the one that's out there in the hill country or for me up in Arkansas, that's the least problem for me. Because as long as I can sell it for roughly what I owe, I'm going to be okay. If I can, if I have to give up where I live and work today and go to this place that's more remote with less opportunity, less jobs around it, that's the one that I've got to keep the cost of living way down from my cost of living today. I need to go at least in half. So if I have a $200,000 house in the city, I need to be looking for a $100,000 house in the country. Understand, 
you buy something out there, it doesn't have to stay that way. You can improve it over time. It sounds to me like you're buying a kit-built 1,500-square-foot cabin. It's probably really lovely. It's probably really beautiful. The people that had it built probably paid contractors to do all the work, and it's probably was turnkey, and uh, they're probably stuck upside down in a mortgage because they did what I'm advising you not to do. So don't do that, and folks, as a whole... You know, make your commitment this week that you're going to get rid of your debt and stay out of it. And that's a great way to start living a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. You can scream and you can holler. It really doesn't matter because it all gets spent. 